This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. And for the 120,000th time, James Fetzer, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Oh, Jeremy, I'm just alive, especially on an occasion such as the 21st observance of 9-11, where virtually everything the government has told us in the official narrative is not just false, but provably false. It's a classic example of the abuse of the media and the government to deceive the American people, indeed, the entirety of the world's population. Jim, why is 9-11 so significant? Well, it was a truly transformative event. They had to steal the election in Florida to get Bush and Cheney into office to bring us 9-11. There was complicity between the CIA, the neocons, and the Department of Defense, most of whom were dual U.S.-Israeli citizens and the Mossad. This whole project originated in the fertile imagination of Bibi Netanyahu and Ehud Umard, who were former and would be future prime ministers of Israel, to promote the Israeli agenda by drawing American forces into the Middle East to take out the modern Arab states that served as a counterbalance to Israel's domination of the entire region and eventually to confront the Persian nation of Iran. It didn't pay out that way, Jeremy, because of the intervention of Russia and Iran on behalf of Syria at the request of Bashir al-Assad, the democratically elected president of Syria, but not for lack of trying. Let's just quickly start at the official story. Yes, yes, yes. According to the official story, 19 Islamic terrorists commandeered four commercial carriers used them as weapons to commit atrocities, reportedly crashing one into the Pentagon, another into the North Tower, and a third into the South, while a fourth, ostensibly on the way back to the Capitol, crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. That this was uh, supposed to be some kind of retaliation for which the, even the president could not offer a rational explanation other than claiming they hate our freedom. And he said, he warned us against believing, you know, uh, fantastic conspiracy theories because, of course, the government's account involving 19 Islamic terrorists under control of a guy off in Afghanistan was itself a conspiracy theory. So the fact is, it was done in a complex fashion that is difficult to sort out. And if I've been successful, it's because I founded Scholars for 9-11 Truth in December of 2005 and brought together hundreds of experts from around the world to sort out what happened, uh, a practice I'd initiated in relation to research on JFK. So I'd become a pioneer in collaborative research on these complex and controversial events. Just uh, for the sake of clarity, whenever I speak to you, I need a strong drink. Is that okay with you? Yes, yes, of course. <laughs> Jeremy, I know these, some of these truths are so astonishing and so disturbing, and the government is so co complicit and corrupt that all of us need a, a strong dose of something to confront mm. these 
let us call them inconvenient truths. Well, let's start off with our, our opening slide. What happened on 9-11? Who is responsible and why? Where I'm so glad to join you again here on germ warfare, my friend. It turns out that according to the Obama administration, Osama bin Laden was killed in a raid on a compound in Pakistan in 2011. But the whole raid was another political theater, another stunt. Osama actually had died in Pakistan about 15 December 2001, buried there in an unmarked grave. There were local obituaries at the time. Fox and CNN would catch up to the facts of the matter on the 26th of December and publish that Osama bin Laden was dead. David Ray Griffin, the dean of 9-11 studies, would publish a book about it, Osama bin Laden, Dead or Alive. Nick Kolostrom, a dear friend of mine, would publish an article, Osama bin Laden, 1957-2001, in which he explained that Osama was our man in Afghanistan. He was instrumental in getting Stinger missiles into the hands of the Mujahideen, which they used to shoot down Soviet helicopters and planes and drive them out of that godforsaken region. The fact is, he was an officer in the CIA. Colonel Tim Osman was his name. He was visited by an official of the agency at a hospital in Dubai shortly before his death uh, on 15 December 2001. From his medical maladies, Jeremy had stopped to get dialysis machines in and out of those caves in Afghanistan. You may remember that in the aftermath of 9-11, when the blame was being cast upon him, the Taliban was asked to turn him over. And they said they'd be willing to do so if the United States had any proof that Osama had been involved. The United States could not produce any proof. This was outrageous, absolutely stunning. And we nevertheless proceeded to invade Afghanistan on the pretext that Osama had been involved. Just to show you the depths of the deception here, when that raid was conducted a decade later in 2011, by sending a SEAL team into this compound in Pakistan where the local residents had never seen Osama because of course he wasn't there, he was already dead, they even staged a photograph in the Situation Room. This is supposed to be members of the Obama administration. Notice on the left, Joe Biden, Barack Obama, Hillary with her hand over her face as though she were just astonished or concerned with what she was witnessing. But Leon Panetta, who was then the director of the CIA, blew their cover. I explained that there'd been no video coverage of the event for the first 20 to 25 minutes, but Jeremy, that was the entire duration of the raid, 20 to 25 minutes. And to ensure that members of the SEAL team wouldn't talk, they loaded them into an old Chinook Vietnam-era helicopter and shot it down. Dead men tell no tales. Meanwhile, let's go back to what happened. Here's some footage from the May Brussels website, where she was a longtime student at JFK, but also documented many other events. You'll see a reprise of a mass show was interrupted by the news. Get this. No second flight. It was a bomb. Bombing another building, not second plane. 
That was the bomb. Right. Who said the second plane? That's what we're told. The second plane. No, we saw it on television. All right. Thanks a lot. This is. of how much of the plane actually impacted the building. You know, it, it, it might have appeared that way, but from my close-up inspection, uh, there's no evidence of a plane having crashed anywhere near the Pentagon. The only site uh, is the actual uh, site of the building that's crashed in, and as I said, the only pieces left uh, that you can see are, are small enough that you could pick up in your hand. Uh, there are no large uh, tail sections, wing sections, uh, a fuselage, nothing like that anywhere around, which would indicate that the entire plane crashed into the side of the Pentagon uh, and then caused the side to collapse. Now, even though if you look at the pictures of the Pentagon, you see uh, that the floors have all collapsed, that didn't happen immediately. Uh, it wasn't until almost about 45 minutes later uh, that the structure was weakened enough that all of the floors collapsed. Jeff, it's, it's a United Airlines plane. It's believed to be uh, at, at that site outside Pittsburgh, isn't it? That's exactly right, John, with 45 people total on board. And one of the more profound things today, the imprint of terrorism seared not only on Wall Street, but also on Main Street. Here you have an area 80 miles to the southeast of Pittsburgh and this plane, which went down at about 10 o'clock this morning. We have rescue vehicles that came in earlier in the day, and they have turned up nothing. No one believed to be alive from this crash. Some of the media just getting back to the scene, which is about quarter of a mile uh, up on a hill back behind me. And so some of the first pictures just starting to come in within the last hour. I want to get qu uh, quickly to Chris Kanicki. He's a photographer with the uh, Pittsburgh affiliate of Fox Affiliate. He was back there just a couple of minutes ago. And Chris, I've seen the pictures. It looks like there's nothing there except for a hole in the ground. Uh, basically, that's right. The only thing you could see from where we were uh, was a big gouge in the earth and some broken trees. You could see some people working, walking around in the area, but from where we could see, there wasn't much left. Any large pieces of debris at all? No, there was nothing, nothing that you could distinguish that a plane had crashed there. Smoke, fire? Nothing. It was absolutely quiet. It was uh, actually very quiet. Um, nothing going on down there. No smoke, no fire. Just a couple of people walking around. They looked like part of the NTSB crew walking around looking at the pieces. How big would you say that hole was? Uh, from my estimates, I would guess it was probably about 20 to 15 feet uh, long and about 10 feet, long, oh, 10 feet wide. What could you see on the ground, if anything, other than dirt and ash? And You couldn't see anything. You could just see dirt, ash, and people walking around, broken trees. Says the city hall in Oakland will remain open. It will be business as usual. He is urging people to remain calm given what is going on, remain calm. Oakland City Hall will remain open, but in San Francisco, City Hall has been closed. We're also just getting word here now that uh, a second United Airlines jet, Flight 175, from Boston to Los Angeles, is now missing. And just joining us, there have been four separate plane crashes. Three of those planes were en route to California. Two were heading to LAX. Third was heading to San Francisco International Airport. That was specifically uh, the one heading to SFO United Flight Number 93 from Newark to SFO. It apparently crashed in Pennsylvania, fairly close to the border of Maryland and not too far from Camp David. Why is that significant? Because uh, one of the groups possibly claiming responsibility for all these terrorist at uh, attacks is the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine. And it was this week 
1978 that the Camp David Accords were reached. Is there a connection? At this point, we don't know, but it is important to be aware of that situation. In Washington, many congressional leaders have been transferred to a secret location. Some senators have described this as a second Pearl Harbor. And uh, President Bush was in Florida this morning, but he made a brief announcement when the first attacks were clear on the World Trade Center, and he was heading back to Washington, D.C. At this point, we don't know exactly where he is. They are trying, they are not really broadcasting that information, but we are told that the president is safe right now. We're waiting for a press conference to start in San Francisco from the Office of Emergency Services to discuss what the situation, what the city's reaction to all of this is going to be. But again, right now... Now, Jeremy, there were indeed the four flights, uh, American uh, 11 out of Logan, that would purportedly hit the North Tower, 175 also out of Logan, the South. Those were both 767s. Then we had uh, out of uh, Newark, United 93, which is supposed to have crashed in Shanksville, and then American 77, Pentagon, out at Dulles International. It's interesting that the security firm in all of these airports was ITTS, which just happens to be an Israeli firm. You notice reports of the NTSB being present at the scene. You heard the description of the photojournalist, Chris Kanicki, that the impact hole was only about 10 by uh, 20 feet. Well, Jeremy, that's preposterous. A Boeing 757 has a 125-foot wingspan. It has a tail that stands 44 feet above the ground. It would have made a far larger impact. And indeed, both of the uh, reporters on the scene said the eerie aspect about the crash site is there was no evidence that any plane had crashed there. Uh, we're often told we can't <laughs> prove a negative, but in fact, we could prove that there's no elephant in our living room, for example, mm. which is mm. a negative by going to our living room and looking for presence of signs of the presence of elephant, finding none. We're entitled to infer that's because there's no elephant in our living room. Similarly, if we go to Shanksville and see this hole of the ground, but there are no signs of any plane having crashed there, we're entitled to infer that's because no plane had crashed there. Indeed, look at the stunning difference between real plane crashes, in this case in Missouri, Amsterdam, Russia. There's a massive amount of debris. This is a 100-ton airliner made out of aluminum. Most of the fuselage remains and a whole lot more. In this case, no bodies, no seats, no luggage. Even that smoke you see now in that lower appears to have been added in. I asked George Nelson, who was an Air Force crash investigator, what he thought had happened in Shanksville. And he said, well, look to him like someone had taken a bulldozer out there, dug a trench, filled it with trash, and blown it up. It's that bad. And here again, you see that image of Chris Kanicki being interviewed the eerie aspect, no signs of any crash having taken place. Apologists for the government insist, as one alternative explanation, that this was an area where mining had taken place. Then they suggested the plane had disappeared into an abandoned mine shaft. <laughs> I know, not only is this ludicrous on its face, 
But we know what to do with miners trapped in mine shafts. We break out the bright lights and the heavy equipment and dig 24-7 in the hope by some miracle someone might have survived. That was not done in Shanksville, even though there were purportedly 47 souls on board. And let me mention, uh, the Boeing 757 can carry 289, but there were only 45 on board. Flight 77. Would, again, a 757, uh, 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 289, but only 64 on board. In New York, they were both 767s, which can carry 351. But Flight 11 only had 92, 175, 65. How could these companies stay in business if they're making transcontinental flights when they're only like one quarter full, Jeremy? This is just one of the obvious anomalies. Now... To support the official narrative, we have a photograph here seen on the left. We have this gray smoke cloud in the air uh, taken by a woman, purportedly taken by a woman named Val McClatchy. But in fact, it turns out to have been photoshopped. The smoke looks much more like that from a demolition, which you see there in the middle. Plus, the smoke is rising over a pond, not the location where the plane is alleged to have crashed. And moreover, as you see on the right, when you have a plane crash, it's dark black smoke. Here's another. So we know this whole thing was monstrously faked. Indeed, it turns out all four of the 9-11 crash sites were faked, albeit in different ways, as I'm going to explain. Pilots for 9-11 Truth, by the way, has done some brilliant work on these flights where they discovered that Flight 93 was still airborne after it had allegedly crashed in Shanksville, where they tracked it on ATC and radar and found it was over Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, after it had officially crashed in Shanksville. So we're beginning to get a sense of the monstrosity of the lies to which we've been subjected. Now here we're looking at four of the five frames that were released by the Pentagon, which has to be the most surveyed building in the world. So they would have had footage from every possible direction. Instead, they chose to release only five frames. It has the wrong date timestamp, which is odd all by itself. One is conveniently labeled plane. And if you look there just above the gate mechanism in the photograph on the upper left, Jeremy, you'll see something that does resemble a plane with a white plume. Now, I've spoken with pilots and aeronautical engineers, and the white plume cannot be the exhaust of a commercial carrier about to hit the plane because that would be black, not white. But it's consistent with a plume of a missile, and it turns out that's what happened at the Pentagon, as I shall explain. Meanwhile, the other frames show this growing fireball in front of the Pentagon, and yet we're going to have reason to doubt whether even the fireball was authentic. I asked a dear colleague from JFK Research, Jack White, if he could scale the image of a Boeing 757 to the tail that we see in that frame. And notice, Jeremy, a 757 would have been more than twice as large as what we see above that gate mechanism. Ergo, it's not a 757. Here, by the way, is the actual hit point at the ground floor of the Pentagon. 
You see an opening that's about 10 feet high and 17 feet wide. They're on broken windows. There's a chain link fence. There are two automobiles that are smoldering, two enormous uh, uh, spools of cable. But what you do not see is a massive pile of debris from a 100-ton airliner, no bodies, no seats, no luggage, no wings, no tail. Here you see after the collapse that took place some 45 minutes later, once again, none of that aircraft debris that one would expect is to be found at the Pentagon, which once again leads us to the inference that if a plane had actually crashed there, then we would find debris from the airplane Finding no debris from the airplane, we're entitled to infer that's because no plane crashed there. And indeed, we have a lot more evidence. When I said there were reason to doubt whether the fireballs even were real, here's an excavation of that section of the Pentagon that would collapse 45 minutes later. I find no signs here of any intense fire. Even on the left side, you see about on the fourth floor, there's a wooden stand that appears from an Oxford Unabridged Dictionary. It's not even singed. Meanwhile, the plane is purported to have approached the building, barely skimming the ground at over 400 miles an hour. Several points to make. First, if it had been barely skimming the ground, the enormous engines would have torn up the lawn. It would have made a mess of the lawn. Number two... It's not even aerodynamically possible for a 757 to barely skim the ground at over 400 miles an hour. As an aeronautical engineer explained to me, due to the phenomenon known as downdraft, that plane at that speed could not got closer than 60 or even 80 feet to the ground, which is higher than the Pentagon at 71 feet is tall fraudulent violation of the laws of aerodynamics proves conclusively this is an impossible scenario. It's fantasy. Further proof that no plane crashed there, look at the clear green Pentagon lawn. There's no debris whatsoever. The two lime green fire trucks you see are extinguishing the very modest fires that remain. They just happen to be in the area. I do not believe the perps anticipated they would be there. But this photograph of the clear green Pentagon lawn is only one among many. Here, for example, from a BBC conspiracy uh, 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 files program where they came to my home and interviewed me for eight, eight hours, Jeremy, for their very first conspiracy files show about 9-11, here you see the perfectly clear green Pentagon lawn, no debris whatsoever. Here's another, this taken after that section of the Pentagon had collapsed. Clear green Pentagon lawn, no debris. So the question becomes, where did the debris come from? Because it would show up later. Now, here you see the most conspicuous piece of debris, which is actually from the fuselage of a 757. But notice, it's not crumpled and compact as would occur from a violent collision. It shows no signs of having been exposed to an intense fire. And if you look carefully, uh, captured by the debris as a chunk of vine not indigenous to the Arlington, Virginia area. 
the question becomes, yeah, the, Jeremy, this is just so fantastic. The question becomes, where in the world did this come from? Well, James Hansen, who's a retired lawyer who resides in uh, Columbus, uh, Ohio, tracked it down. The, the 757 is a very safe airliner. There have been very few crashes of the 757 worldwide. But American Airlines Flight 965 uh, in uh, Columbia, uh, near Cali, actually the pilots lost their way, crashed to a jungle where these vines are present in abundance into the side of a mountain. Here you see a photograph from the debris at the scene where, surprise, surprise, an Israeli company conducted the salvage and clearly a piece of debris was held back until it could be used for a good purpose, which turned out to be planting it on the lawn of the Pentagon. Now, when they interviewed me for eight hours, I gave them hundreds of arguments of how we knew that 9-11 was an inside job. They chose a seven-and-a-half-minute segment where I talked about my inference that that debris had been dropped by a C-130 that was circling the building. It would have been too awkward and obvious to have enlisted men and officers carrying that debris out onto the Pentagon lawn. Well, they found that the least plausible of all the information I'd given them over eight hours, picked out that seven and a half minutes to combine with three and a half minutes of Dylan Avery, who, of course, produced Loose Change, that splendid documentary about 9-11 as a snot-nosed kid. Alex Jones, who, of course, had talked extensively about 9-11 as a messianic uh, preacher, and then me, uh, uh, Jim Fetzer, as the kooky professor. They even uh, interviewed... Uh, the pilot of the C-130 who said not that it was false, but that it was absurd. He did not actually deny having done that for which I can find no alternative explanation. Meanwhile, returning to the official trajectory, barely skimming the ground, the plane is supposed to have taken out a series of six lamp posts. Now, by Newton's third law, every equal and opposite reaction by the relativity of motion, we know that the effect of a plane traveling 400 miles an hour and taking out a series of stationary lampposts would have the same causal effect as if the plane were stationary and hit by those lampposts traveling over 400 miles an hour. They would have ripped open the wings, the fuel stored in the wings would have mixed with oxygen, burst into flames, the plane would have cartwheeled across the Pentagon lawn and created a huge mess, none of which, as we've already documented, happened. Now, it's extremely interesting that uh, Citizens Investigative Team, uh, two guys who are doing excellent research on 9-11, discovered witnesses at a sitgo station in the vicinity of the Pentagon who reported were observing a plane approach the Pentagon but to the left of the Sitgo station, whereas the official trajectory would have had it to the right. They were all very consistent in their explanations, and they believed that the plane that passed to the left of the Sitgo station actually had hit the Pentagon. Now, I had a friend who, who, who had a buddy who was a trucker who just happened to be in front of the Pentagon who told him how he watched, how a plane flew over of the Pentagon, 
Uh, and uh, uh, my friend, whose name is Roy Schaefer, was puzzled because his buddy, Dave Ball, insisted nevertheless that a plane had still hit the Pentagon. It appears that the timing was such that the plane was approaching the Pentagon just as that missile was being fired into the building to create a great explosion, where Dennis Camino, who is a top Navy tr electronics troubleshooter, sorted out that it had been a, 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 an unmanned aerial vehicle, a global hawk, that fired a missile into the West Wing, which had recently been reinforced, and it was bereft of, uh, of other property and personnel, except for, and get this, quite remarkable, the budget team that it appears Donald Rumsfeld had directed to track down the missing $2.3 trillion he'd announced the day before to be missing from the Pentagon budget. When I saw the list of casualties from the Pentagon, 125, and saw three dozen were accounts, budget experts, and other financial analysts, I recognized they'd been set up to destroy the records and documents for the missing $2.3 a point to which I shall return. Further signs of faking the evidence? Here's a hole in the C-ring that is alleged to have been caused by a landing gear from Flight 77 impacting with the building. But it was impacting at an angle. That means if it had hit the C-ring, and remember the Pentagon is five rings E, uh, e D, C, B, A, if it had actually hit the C-ring at an angle, then you would have had an asymmetrical hole. Instead, this is perfectly symmetrical. And inside the ring, you see the word spray painted, punch out. There was reports of cordite, which is a military explosive in the vicinity at the time, which appears to have been used to blow out this hole in the Pentagon. We saw Jamie McIntyre earlier, who is the best reporter for CNN, explaining how from his close-up inspection, there was no sign of a plane having hit anywhere near the Pentagon. He is absolutely correct in that. He was picking up small pieces of what was uh, a synthetic material out of which the unmanned aerial vehicle, the Global Hawk, was made. But it's not a plane. And what he was reporting was completely accurate. Jamie McIntyre, however, was put under enormous pressure to take it back, to withdraw his claim that a plane had hit the Pentagon, which he did in the following way. He said, only a fool would deny that a plane had hit the Pentagon, meaning he had been a fool to think that his bosses at CNN expected him to report the truth about what happened at the Pentagon on 9-11. He, I believe, tired of carrying so much heavy water Manure, political manure, retired, even though he was CNN's best correspondent. Meanwhile, April Gallup, a civilian employee at the Pentagon, explained how she came in that morning and when she first touched her computer, there was a massive explosion at the front of the building. She actually walked out of the hole created by that massive explosion and found no signs of aircraft debris, but smelled a lot of cordite, a lot of explosives. Meanwhile, in Germany, Major General Albert Stumblebein, U.S. Army retired, who had formerly been the head of all U.S. military signals, including photographic intelligence, meaning this was the top guy 
for photographic analysis in the American Armed Forces, gave an interview during which he explained it was clear to him no plane had hit the Pentagon because had there been, there would have been the imprint of a plane on the facade of the Pentagon, which is made out of limestone, which is a relatively soft, porous stone. It would have shown the impact very clearly. I was very impressed with uh, Major General and invited him uh, to an interview where I presented all the evidence I'm presenting here about all four of the crash sites. Major General Stubblebine not only agreed with me, but offered additional reasons why I was right. So here you had the, the top intel guy regarding photographs for the entire U.S. military agreeing with me that all four of the 9-11 crash sites had been faked. They claimed a rumor that what was Flight 93 was actually headed for the Capitol, which caused an evacuation. And members of Congress came out on the steps of the Capitol, and when they peered across the Pentagon, they saw billowing black smoke. Well, I thought that was very peculiar, because as we've already observed, the two lime green civilian fire trucks had extinguished the very modest fires. So when I looked into the matter, I found that billowing black smoke was coming from a series of enormous dumpsters in front of the Pentagon. In other words, Jeremy, this was a classic Hollywood-style special effect, as you can see here. A member of Scholars came to Duluth uh, in early 2006 and shared with me 44 more frames he had where you could actually see the light between the dumpsters and the Pentagon building itself, confirming what I had already concluded, to wit, this was simply a special effect. If we turn to New York City, it's quite remarkable, and would be not broadcast until the following day, but a French film crew known as the Naudet brothers was doing ostensibly doing research on the NY Fire Department checking a gas leak when Flight 11 is alleged to have hit the North Tower. Now, when you hear the sound and look to the source of the sound, the plane is no longer there. And nevertheless, uh, the, the, the cameraman was able to effortlessly swing his camera up and capture the hit, which is only plausible if he already knew where it was going to be. Indeed, a, a Scottish student of 9-11 has determined in relation to this footage that a hundred improbable circumstances had to be satisfied in order for them to capture this precise image. And where it turns out even, in Jeremy, this shows how absurd it is. Nade Brothers is an anagram of the Wayne Street, which is the street where they were filming. In no. other words, no. yes, they're just insulting us. Now, if you actually had a 767 approaching the North Tower, it would have looked like this. But notice now, here is a time sequence imagery. Rosalie Grable, also known as the Web Fairy, created this composite. She said it looked more like a flying pig. It most certainly did not resemble a Boeing 767. And here's the alleged hit taking place where there was a kind of a flash frame. We had the same thing in the South Tower. But 
the initial impact was kind of a, a Z, as you see on the left, an elongated Z. But after the smoke cleared, it was a, a wider elongated V. And not only that, Jeremy, but they actually touched it up. They didn't feel as though the impression had been sufficient. So here we have from the Naude frame of impact, you don't see this little extension from the right wing tip. And by the way, the wings are among the most vulnerable and fragile components. There's no actual possible way this plane could have entered this building. It appears there was some kind of cutout to create those images beneath the massive amount of, of smoke when the explosion took place, which had to be from previously positioned jet fuel or napalm. There are actually in the imagery lots of little twinkling points of light leading me to conjecture. Perhaps this is what George H.W. Bush meant when he talked about a million points of light. Meanwhile, the plane was intersecting with seven different floors. Now, what's crucial to understand about the design of the World Trade Center is there were 47 massive core columns at the center, 230 very formidable external steel support columns around the perimeter, which were connected by steel trusses that had four-inch deep grooves that were filled with concrete. So because of the four-inch deep grooves, you'd have a variance in the amount of concrete on each floor from four to eight inches deep, but because the buildings were 208 feet on a side, each floor represented an acre of concrete on a steel truss. The resistance would have been phenomenal. It would have been impossible for any real plane to have entered the building. A fellow by the name of Steve Dack has suggested that the, the cutouts were actually caused by missiles fired from the Woolworth building in the case of the towers to, to cause those cutouts. My conjecture has been it was done by the gelatin group. These were Israeli art students who were in tied the World Trade Center who had access, who were conducting what they call performance art external to the buildings, where what you see here, Jeremy, is box after box of fuse holders. They had some role in prepping the building for what would occur on 9-11 and may have even been responsible for setting up, you know, explosive to create those cutouts. Though I do believe Steve Duck has a viable alternative hypothesis. Even though there are around 200 of these Israeli art students, none of them were present on 9-11. Here's an overview of some of, the view, some of what took place that day. It was really quite astonishing in the American public has no idea that the events included the following, where, where there were over 200 Israelis in the United States under the guise of being art students, including the gelatin group who had a, a variety of tasks on 9-11 among them, planting jammers on buildings to block Port Authority dispatchers and first responder radios, to plant explosives on the New Jersey side of the George Washington Bridge, where the cables were anchored to collapse a bridge, explode a, trunk and a truck in the Lincoln Tunnel, explode a truck in the Holland Tunnel, park trumps with demolition devices in specific parking areas of the Twin Towers. In other words, the whole event was intended to be far more extensive. And by the way, 
It's pretty tough to imagine how 19 Islamic hijackers in planes could have exploded trucks in the Lincoln or the Holland Tunnel or brought down the George Washington Bridge. That just so happens there were five who were seen celebrating in uh, Liberty State Park in New Jersey across the Potomac from the uh, across the Hudson River from the World Trade Center who are filming the destruction of the World Trade Center in particular the demolition of the Twin Towers, taking selfies, celebrating high fives. A woman resident found this behavior so suspicious. She notified the police, who apprehended them in a van from Urban Moving Systems, which turns out to be an Israeli asset. The vans had a mural depicted here of a plane hitting the Twin Towers. The five were found at in the van with residue of explosive box cutters, passports, money. They were held incarcerated for 44 days until a deputy to the attorney general, who at the time was John Ashcroft, by the name of Michael Chertoff, another dual U.S.-Israeli citizen who would become the second head of Homeland Security, directed their release, and they returned to Israel where three of them appeared on television and explained they had been there to document the destruction of the World Trade Center, which obviously implies foreknowledge. So here's Chertoff, who bears a certain resemblance to what you might think as a stereotype of an Auschwitz prison guard, who had become, as I say, our second head of Homeland Security after Tom Ridge. Meanwhile, in relation to the South Tower, here's, here's a frame of what's supposed to be Flight 175 approaching the building. Now, there turned out to be a, a very large number of videos for the, for the approach to the South Tower. It turns out that when you analyze the speed of the plane in the South Tower footage, pilots for 9-11 Truth calculated the, the data provided by the National Transportation Safety Board of a radar data impact speed study, which concluded that that 510 knots and 430 for United South Tower and American North, respectively. In other words, that at the South Tower, the plane was traveling 510 knots at the North 430, but those exceed the structural capabilities of a 767, which would have come apart in flight, so that they have produced a documentary entitled 9-11 Intercepted, where they show, you know, in an animated version, what actually would have happened had that plane been traveling at that speed at that altitude. Now, John Lear, who has been our nation's most distinguished pilots holding 50 international speed records provided an affidavit for a lawsuit in New York over 9-11 in which he explained how at that altitude and speed uh, the air is three times thicker than it is at the cruising speed of 35,000 feet where the mistake they made appears to have been to assume that the cruising speed at 35,000 feet could be attained at 700 to 1,000 where because the air is so much denser, the turbines can't process and begin to function as brakes. In other words, he provides additional confirmation for the pilot's conclusion the plane would have come apart in flight. Meanwhile, 
We know from many of the videos and photographs it simply disappeared into the building. This has led to the Flight 175 being described as a ghost plane or as a butter plane because it disappeared into this massive 500,000 ton steel and concrete building as though it were a 110 story cube of butter. Yeah, Since this is the big one. This is the big yes. one. Big one. Yes. Very, yes, Jeremy, this is utterly fascinating because we're witnessing a violation of Newton's laws of physics. Again, the building ought to have crumpled external. It was intersecting with eight different floors, which, as I've observed, each of which represented a maker of concrete on a steel truss. And the formidable external steel support columns would not have allowed a real plane to enter. Here you see Ace Baker in his 9-11 Psy Opera, a brilliant piece of work, displaying artistically what would have happened if a real plane had encountered the side of a twin tower. There would have been body seats. It would have crumpled external to the building. Body seats, luggage would have fallen to the ground, wings, tail. The engines, which are virtually indestructible, could have entered the building but the rest would have fallen to the ground. We had a similar phenomenon with the South Tower, of course, that we had a massive explosion that appears to have been created by pre-positioned jet fuel and napalm. Now, as I shall explain, I believe the original plan was to use remotely controlled drones. In fact, I've uh, Donald Rumsfeld, as I mentioned, announced that 2.3 trillion missing from the Pentagon budget, where at the time, the chief financial officer of the Pentagon was not just a dual U.S.-Israeli citizen, he was actually a rabbi, Dov Zokheim, who had a company that manufactured remote control devices to regain control over aircraft should they be hijacked. I believe the original plan was to use real planes remotely controlled to hit the Pentagon, but when they discovered it was physically impossible to get the planes into the building, they had to change plans and find an alternative explanation because a uh, 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 mode of deception because they needed to get the planes into the buildings before they exploded to have a pseudo explanation for what they would call the collapse of the Twin Towers, even though, as I'm going to explain, it wasn't even physically possible for the Twin Towers to collapse. Now, what we see here, Jeremy, is uh, the roadway <coughs> beneath the Building 1 and Building 2, the North and the South Tower, which are utterly bereft of any aircraft debris, no bodies, no seats, no luggage, uh, no wings, no tail, not only that, but we had the planting of an engine, fabricating evidence at Church and Murray. Jack White again. Newsworthy things were happening on 9-11 in Church and Murray, so Fox was there. An FBI van parked on Murray at the church intersection, door open. An FBI agent stands guard over something not seen in other photos at this location. Blue clad FBI agents appear beside the van and seem to struggle with something heavy. There appear to be six FBI agents and a photographer in the video frames. Another image taken at the deserted corner right shows a dolly used for moving something. 
What does a complete video show a pickup or a delivery? Well, what we're seeing there, Jeremy, is an antiquated engine from a Boeing 767, but no longer in use. It's been identified by aeronautical engineers because of the features of the engine that are visible. It's merely sitting on the sidewalk. It's beneath a steel scaffolding and a canopy, which are undamaged. Had something that massive hit, hit a sidewalk at the velocity that would have occurred, it would have churned it up. It would have destroyed the sidewalk. But to avoid the city of New York, the, the task of having to repair the sidewalk at considerable expense, they simply set it on the sidewalk. Meanwhile, just in relation to the impossibility of entering the building, if a bird doesn't vaporize in the process of slicing a wing, and we know the damage done to aircraft by impacting a bird weighing only a few ounces, then a plane shouldn't vaporize during the process of slicing steel and concrete. Where is the evidence that a plane created those holes? I'm talking about the cookie cutter cutouts as you see them on the right for the the bottom, for the north, the top, for the south. And here you see more damage under the front fr fragile nose of an aircraft. You see a sample of the formidable external steel support columns at the bottom left there, Jeremy. These were very substantial. Now, there are apologists for the government who talk about uh, uh, an experiment, that Sandia experiment, where an F-4 Phantom fighter jet was filled with water, put on a railroad trussel, and then run with a rocket motor into a, a nuclear-resistant concrete bunker. And it just disappears. It flies into a million pieces. Well, is there any reason to think that would have happened on 9-11 with the planes? No. Uh, the, the Phantom is made out of a synthetic material filled with water, uh, the 9-11 the aircraft were made of aluminum and largely filled with air. Uh, it, 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 the, even the Phantom didn't crash through the nuclear-resistant concrete. And, of course, we know the plane would not have, but would have crumbled external. It, to draw an analogy, Jeremy, it would like me throwing a, a beer can at a brick wall. No matter how hard you throw the beer can at the brick wall, it's going to crumble external to the building. So we know the plane would be exerting a tremendous force on the wall, but the wall would be exerting an equal and opposite force on the plane. It should be busting up on the outside rather than simply disappearing into the building. And in fact... There's an image here I seem to have lost where we see the plane passing into the building in the same number of frames. It passes through air. It's complete length into the building in the same number of frames. It passes through air, Jeremy. It's truly embarrassing. Here it is. Here it is. Jetliner melts through steel wall. Aluminum Boeing 767 slices like a knife through butter as it melts into the steel walls of the South Tower without breaking off wings or tail and causing an immediate explosion of the fuel tank. This violates all of Newton's laws of physics and is thus a physical impossibility. The mass of the aluminum plane is overwhelmingly smaller 
and this massive 500,000 steel and concrete building. And yet, we have from two different videos, Jeremy, we count the frames, and the plane passes its entire length into the building in the same number of frames it passes its entire length through air, which is uh, simply absurd unless a massive 500,000-ton building provides no more resistance to the trajectory of an aircraft in flight than air. In other words, we're witnessing another absurdity. We know for a certainty that these images have been faked. If you notice at the lower left, by the way, a most peculiar phenomenon occurred because during the broadcast, the nose of Flight 175 came out the opposite side. Now, because the nose is the most fragile part of a plane, we're witnessing another physical impossibility, which appears to have resulted <laughs> appears to have resulted from a failure of hand-eye coordination. And Jeremy, would you believe when that nose out occurred, the network faded to black? In other words, here they are recording, broadcasting live. The most significant events ever broadcast on television live, and they fade to black because there's been a glitch here, a blunder that blows the whole fraud apart, the nose out. Did those planes, or at least the names of those planes, take off that day with passengers on board? Well, two did and two did not, Jeremy. That's very interesting. I'll come to it. But both... Uh, Flight 11, which was the North Tower, and Flight 77, the Pentagon, were not even in the air that day. They did not even take off. We have the Bureau of Transportation records for that, where the Bureau of Transportation keeps very detailed information about every flight, every commercial flight in the United States, from the scheduled departure to the actual pull away from the gate, to the wheels up, to the wheels down, to the landing and uh, deplaning. No records. There was no record for either Flight 11 or Flight 77 initially. Now, they've gone back and they've made some partial additions, but they don't have the detailed information because those planes were not even in the air. And as I've already explained with regard to uh, Flight 93, Flight 93 was discovered to still be in the air and be over Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, after it had officially crashed and to anticipate a point to which I shall return, pilots for 9-11 Truth also tracked Flight 175 and discovered that it was over Harrisburg and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, after it officially hit the South Tower, and where I obtained FAA registration records showing that the physical aircraft using for those two different flights were not even formally taken out of service until 28 September 2005, four years later. So, Jeremy, we've been subjected to a massive deception about one of the most consequential events of recent world history. So question becomes, how did they fake it? Well, Rosalie Grable, once again, has suggested it was done with, uh, you know, computer-generated images, CGI. Ace Baker has suggested it was done with video compositing, which is adding the images of the planes between the time the initial footage is recorded and the time it's actually broadcast. 
because there's an opportunity there of about 17 seconds where those images of the planes could have been added. The third hypothesis, which was advanced by Richard D. Hall of the UK, is that actually they were using holograms, holographic images, to represent the planes. Now let me explain why Richard Hall appears to have got it right. Think about it. If it had been CGI or video compositing, then the images of the planes would only have been visible in the broadcast imagery, but not in real time. And yet we have as many as 500 reports of witnesses who claim to have seen a plane approaching the building in real time. Now, they varied greatly in their descriptions. Some said it was a large plane, some said a small, some said it was a military plane, some said it was commercial, but all of them agreed they saw what they took to be a plane in flight approaching the building. Since, had it been computer-generated images or video compositing, there would have been no image to see in real time approaching the building, but only in the broadcast imagery. It appears that we can exclude computer-generated images and video compositing for consideration. So why should we take seriously the idea that it was holographic images? Well, you can find online Richard E. Hall's Flight 175 Radar Data 3D Analysis. In my opinion, this is completely brilliant. What did he do? Well, there are some 52 videos of Flight 175 approaching the building. He discovered 27 of those were sufficiently clear and precise that you could actually plot the location of the plane at a specific time as it was approaching the building. And then in relation there too, he had a whole series of plots of how the plane approached the South Tower. He discovered in NIST documents that they had a similar plot which they claimed to have been based on radar data. When Richard looked at their radar data, it did not look right to him. But he discovered, lo and behold, there actually was military radar. And when he compared it with the plots, he discovered, lo and behold, to his astonishment, the plane captured on the military radar was 1,200 feet to the right of the plots that he had constructed from the various videos that even corresponded to NIST. So he conjectured what we had going on here was a plane 1,200 feet to the side that was projecting the image of the what was supposed to be Flight 175 that can account for the impossible speed that the projected image was traveling faster than the real plane could have been traveling because the plane projecting was flying faster than a 767 could fly at that speed to maintain the integrity of the holographic image. It explains why we had the impossible entry, because we're not talking about a physical plane interacting with that actual 500,000 ton steel and concrete building, but merely the image of a plane which would pass through effortlessly entire length in the same number of frames it passed through its entire length in air and why we'd have the nose-out phenomenon. They forgot to cut off the image projection, the holographic image in time, 
and allowed the nose to pop out, which as I've already observed is physically impossible had it been real because the nose is so fragile in these aircraft and that the radar picked up the real plane 1,200 feet to the side of the plot, but it images because the images weren't real. Radar occurs by radar, rad, radio waves bouncing off of solid objects. But since a real plane was a solid object, the radar picked up the real plane, but not the image it was projecting because it was not. So here you see a physical depiction of the plane projecting the image of the Boeing 767 as it approached the building. Now, I'm given to understand that Richard Hall has repudiated his theory, which if that is indeed the case, means is an illustration of the fact that a person's later thinking may be inferior to their earlier thinking, because I'm convinced this is the correct analysis. So if Richard D. Hall has abandoned this theory, then I, James H. Fetzer, adopt it. So while Richard Hall originated the theory, if he no longer defends it, I, Jim Fetzer, do. He got it right. I even was sent a page from an Australian military manual for an airborne holographic projector. Let me read the brief description. A holographic projector displays a three-dimensional visual image in a desired location removed from the display generator. The projector can be used for psychological operations and strategic perception management. It's also useful for optical deception and cloaking, providing a momentary distraction when engaging an unsophisticated adversary. And I think it's fair to say the American people are an unsophisticated adversary. So get this. Here's a pilot's for 9-11 Truth report about Flight 175 having been in the vicinity of Harrisburg and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania after it had officially hit uh, the South Tower. Eight, eight cars messages, these are air ground communication messages, have been provided through the Freedom of Information Act demonstrating the aircraft received messages through ground stations located in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and then later routed through a ground station in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, 20 minutes after the airport, after the aircraft allegedly impacted the South Tower in New York. How can messages be routed through such remote locations if the aircraft was in New York? Not to mention, how can messages be routed to an aircraft that allegedly crashed 20 minutes earlier? Brilliant work by pilots for 9-11 Truth. Now, if we turn to events in New York with regard to the World Trade Center, Donald Trump was the first personnel in the world to contest the official version of the attacks of 9-11 on television that very day. After having noted the engineers who built the Twin Towers were now working for him, he declared on New York's Channel 9 that it was impossible that Boeing's could have burst through the steel structures of the towers. He continued by stating it was also impossible that Boeing's could have caused the towers to collapse. He concluded by affirming there had to be other factors of which we were as yet unaware. And he mentioned the word bombs. Making 9-11 great again. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, listen, you know, people who doubt Trump's sincerity or honesty, I mean, this is a, a stellar moment for Donald Trump. And remember, I mean, he's a prominent guy. He, he's uh, well-known in New York. He's a businessman. He's a celebrity. He, he's a famous guy. And for him to take this stand in the immediate aftermath that very day was an admirable act. And remember, when we looked at that footage of how the, 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 the broadcast of MASH was interrupted and a civilian on the ground said to the reporter, it was bombs, not plane bombs. And the reporter said, well, it was a, the second plane. We saw it on television. There you get the juxtaposition between the truth and the, the illusion. Because what we saw on television that day was a fantasy, and I have no doubt they consulted Hollywood experts in bringing about this production, Jeremy. This was much too sophisticated for anyone in the Pentagon alone to have pulled it off. But Jim, uh, could so hold on, hold on. Could, could Trump not have declassified the documents when he was president? Listen, Trump was surrounded by traitors. The greatest disadvantage he had by being an individual who had not previously served in government is that he didn't have a, a previously positioned party with a government in waiting. What you have with a Democrat and Republican establishment is tentative officials to occupy all the key positions, all the key offices in the uh, American government, which is how it happened so rapidly that they install a new administration. But Trump was laboring at the severe disadvantage that even though he'd engineered a hostile takeover of the Republican Party and turned it from a country club organization into a populist party supported by the American people who regarded him as a breath of fresh air, they liked him because he was not a member of the establishment, and because he was promising to drain the swamp, they wanted him. But the establishment didn't. Trump was upending a whole lot of their plans and procedures. He was he was nullifying the ordinary way of doing business in Washington, D.C. And as a consequence, he was surrounded by a whole host of advisors who were actually working against him. Jeremy, we have reports how Trump would explain what he wanted done, and the officials would all nod and smile in agreement. And then as soon as they got out of the office, look at each other and say, I'm not doing that. And the uh, you know, and just not carrying through. In fact, if you want a perfect illustration of the way in which he was betrayed, Bill Barr, the former attorney general, in whom many of us had confidence, thinking he was a uh, an embodiment of integrity, has come out to trash Trump over the Mar-a-Lago raids and support the absurd claims of the FBI that were used to improperly justify the warrant, which was so gigantically vague and encompassing, it's not even a legal warrant, because it said you could secure any document whatsoever during the entire four years of office that Trump occupied which is just ridiculous. Warrants have to be very specific about exactly what objects are, exact location and all that, so that in my opinion, even if they were to find something incriminating, it would not be admissible in a court of law. 
But they know that. And of course, this has nothing to do with courts of law. This has to do with public opinion. This is political theater. We know that the Department of Justice and the FBI are totally corrupt. We know the Department of Justice and the FBI have become the enforcement wing of the Democrat Party. We know the Department of Justice and the FBI buried the Hunter Biden laptop uh, in, in this most recent election to preserve Joe Biden from any reports that would have been very negative about him and his own corruption and his son, who is a miscreant, uh, just a, about as depraved and perverted as individuals ever, we've ever known. But that was a replication in this instance by Christopher Ray of what his predecessor James Comey had done in 2016 with regard to the Anthony Weiner laptop, which included a, a veritable repository of horror stories, including Hillary Clinton and Huma Abbott and torturing and murdering a 14-year-old girl. Jeremy, I'm telling you, this is so disgusting. They covered it up. And what that means is, we really are living in a lawless society. What has distinguished the United States in the past from other nations is the rule of law. The fact that we don't play favorites under the law. But the Department of Justice and the FBI have been playing favorites all along. They've been favoring Hillary Clinton. They've been favoring Joe Biden. And they've been disfavoring Donald Trump. Remember, it was the FBI that was involved in manufacturing the phony documents, the Steele dossier that was used to imply that Donald Trump was an agent of Russia. Hillary was behind it. It was her game plan. And frankly, I believe Hillary was behind the raid on Mar-a-Lago. All of this is disgusting beyond belief. And we currently have the Department of Justice contesting the appointment of a special master when nothing could be more appropriate. If there were ever a case for a special master to sort out documents, it's those that occur from an unwarranted raid on the, the property of a former president of the United States where he was keeping all these documents in a secure location, and, and yet they took all kinds of pr private personal documents, even including three passports, but a host of other memorabilia and the like. Donald Trump is a very honest guy, in my opinion, who wants to do right for America. Now, he has his flaws and shortcomings. He needs to disavow the vax, which is causing mayhem all around the world. And yet he was instrumental in bringing it about. But once again, because he was given bad advice by Anthony, Tony, the rat, Fauci, and Deborah Burks who's even admitted in a new book she's published that she knew that the vax wasn't actually going to protect people from transmission. Uh, she, she knew that they were just making up the social distancing standards in the lockdowns as they went along. And yet Trump was played into doing this initially told for two weeks, but then it was extended again and again, the greatest economic catastrophe to befall the United States in its entire history. So I would like to see Trump disavow, but I guarantee you 100%, notwithstanding his failings, he cares about the United States of America. He does want to make America great again, and he really, truly had a high degree of success, notwithstanding the obstacles. He made our economy robust. He made us energy independent. He, he saw the 
wages rising at the highest rate, especially for those at the lowest wage earners. He secured our border. In fact, in a Rasmussen poll in December of 2019, 40% of black American voters were saying they were going to support Trump because he'd actually done things that benefited them in their lives, which the Democrats have not. The Democrats want you to forget all of this. And they've even declared war on mega supporters, which is completely outrageous, unconstitutional, undemocratic, with a recent dark speech given by Biden. And by the way, Jeremy, just as an aside, the following day, Biden was asked how he felt about Trump supporters. He said he didn't think that Trump supporters were enemies of the state, that they simply voted for him because they believed in a, uh, his, his philosophy contradicting what he'd said the night before. How is that possible? I believe they actually used a hologram for the dark speech in front of the blood red drapes and the two Marines whom I believe were actually actors. They couldn't afford to use the guy because he has so much trouble with teleprompters. He can't even read the words, much less understand their meaning. So I believe that whole speech was actually done once again with holograms. And we know the Technology is so sophisticated. Indeed, one of the arguments made against the holographic projection for Flight 175 is the belief that you have to have a solid object to project a hologram, and therefore some maintain there was a missile fired at the South Tower, and the hologram was used to cloak it. Well, we know that military technology is decades ahead of what the public is allowed to know, and only about 18 months ago, it was revealed that they've developed holographic technology to the point where they can project on air molecules as a temporary screen. And that appears to be exactly how it was done. Uh, Most of the audience, if they look into it, can see the case of of, of a business leader coming out and giving a talk about 15 minutes long and then turning out to be a hologram. I believe that's what we had going on with Biden. They just couldn't afford to let him do it because it was going to be a glitch. So I believe the guy who's impersonating Joe Biden, the fake president, hasn't even seen the speech for which he's been so massively criticized and questioned about. Turning back to the Twin Towers, they were masterpieces of architecture and engineering, uh, 110 stories tall. They were basically 330 story buildings that were connected and supplemented with additional floors to make a total of 110. And they went well beneath the ground, about six sub-basements deep. Here you see what I've been describing, the massive 47 core columns and the external 130 external steel support columns. Look how massive they are, connected by those steel trusses filled with concrete to create all this open working space. This was an innovative design, Jeremy. It received uh, awards for architecture and engineering. These were extremely robust structures, among the most ever designed by the hand of man. Now, here is one of several charts by Chuck Baldwin, who is a retired high school math, physics, and chemistry teacher, showing the relative thickness of the steel. In the sub-basements, it was six inches thick 
then five, then four, then three, then two, then one, coming up to the top floors, top 14 floors. It was only one uh, quarter of an inch thick. Now, this is important because what it means is the top floors had the least mass for the top. We would be told that the top floors collapsed because of the intense fire from the jet fuel and caused a cascade, a kind of a domino effect of lower floors or like a pile driver. But it turns out to be completely absurd. That top mass was minuscule compared to the mass of the rest of the building. And John Skilling, who was a key engineer involved in this, explained that the buildings were designed with a, a safety factor of 20 which means each floor was designed to carry 20 times its expected live load, where the live load equals a dead load empty of any furniture, computers, personnel, the live load when you add it all in. So they were actually designed with a, a factor of 20 safety factor. Now, the, the World Trade Center actually had seven buildings, not the north and the south, but a series of other buildings including building number seven, a 47-story skyscraper. That would have been the largest building in some 36 states. Uh, but when it was surrounded by 110-story buildings, was dwarfed thereby. It turns out there was an asbestos problem in the Twin Towers, which had large amounts of asbestos fireproofing that would have necessitated costly removal had they remained standing. The exact amount of distribution remains unclear, like other details of the building's construction and history, but the evidence suggests the cost of its removal might have rivaled the value of the buildings themselves. Jeremy, there was an estimate that to build steel structures around the Twin Towers to remove the asbestos would have run a billion dollars apiece. Now, they couldn't remove it by classic controlled demolition because that would have released all the asbestos into the atmosphere. But how convenient if you have terrorist strikes that commit the equivalent of a controlled demolition of the buildings and there's no way around it because, after all, terrorists did it. A report by Arnold and Porter Law Firm provided some details on the asbestos application and removal. The WTC towers were built from 1968 to 1972. A slurry mixture of asbestos and cement was sprayed on as fireproofing material. But this practice was banned by the New York City Council in 1971. This halted the spraying, but not before hundreds of tons of the material had been applied. Some, but not all, was later removed in the abatement program. Now, here you see the WTC after. Look at this. It's just astonishing. It's as though all and only buildings with a WTC designation were destroyed, most of them virtually completely destroyed. And look at surrounding buildings virtually completely undamaged. It's remarkable, and most Americans are unaware, but that at the time when the planes were supposed to have been hitting the building, there were explosions in the sub-basement of both the North and the South Tower. Here you see a photograph of smoke arising from the explosion in the North Tower. Willie Rodriguez, who was a senior custodian in the North Tower, was present when all this happened. He saw a colleague 
who, who had skin just hanging from his body as a consequence of the effect and explained to me when he came here to Madison and gave a talk about 9-11 and we had dinner afterwards with Kevin Barrett, how he watched the sub-basement fill up with water in the after effect, which led me to recognize that the reason for these explosions in the sub-basements was to drain the sprinkler systems of water so they could not extinguish the very modest fires that remained after the spectacular fireballs had diminished and all but extinguished, which took about 15 or 20 seconds alone. The explosions were fairly significant, causing damage in the lobbies, for example. But here you see seismic recordings for the first impact and the second, and the times at which they occur versus the uh, what, what we were told were the, the first collapse and the second collapse, although, as I'm going to explain, it wasn't even physically possible for the buildings to collapse. Well, Gordon Ross and Craig Furlong published a paper entitled Seismic Proof, 9-11 was an inside job. They took the radar data, which showed when the planes were supposed to have hit, and according to the 9-11 Commission, the exact time, and compared it with the seismic data from those earlier explosions in the sub-basement, and they discovered 14 and 17 second discrepancies. In other words, the explosions actually took place before the planes hit the building, which makes the official explanation that the explosions were caused by jet fuel falling through the elevator shafts untenable, impossible, because you have the effect coming before the cause. Here the commission concluded, for example, that Flight 11 hit the North Tower at 8.46.40, but the seismic explosion from the North Tower was at 8.46.26, 14 seconds earlier. Similarly for Flight 175, the commission concluded that the plane had hit at 9.03.11, but the seismic explosion occurred in the South Tower at 9.02.54, 17 seconds earlier. So indeed, they do have proof that it was an inside job. And here you can see that equivalent of being three 30-story structures that were then supplemented with additional floors to create a total of 110. And if you look at the elevator shafts, you'll see what a stretch it is to claim that jet fuel fell all the way from the impact point to the sub-basement. There are only a couple of elevators that did that. For all the major elevators, and there were quite a few, you'd come down 30 floors and you have to get off, get on other elevators, come down 30 floors, get off, get on other elevators, come down 30 floors, reflecting what I've suggested to wit, that these 110-story buildings were actually built around three 30-story structures supplemented with additional floors. Now, what most Americans do not know is that the sub-basements of the Twin Towers were below the water level of the Hudson, so that they had to be constructed inside of a moat that was known as the bathtub. The bathtub created a barrier so Hudson River water wouldn't flood in, to the area where the Twin Towers were located. And what this meant was, in order to demolish the Twin Towers, 
they had to find a technique that would not damage the bathtub. Because if they damaged the bathtub, then Hudson River water would have flooded beneath lower Manhattan, the most expensive, the most valuable real estate in the world. So they had to come up with an ingenious plan of how this would be done. Here you see the North Tower, which of course is distinctive because of its antenna, undergoing a partial demolition. Now, I was struck way back when, as a founder of Scholars for 9-11 Truth, where I brought experts together from all around the world to organize and collaborate, where we created a, a website, uh, the remnants of which are at 911scholars.org, uh, in order to share our efforts where we could publish articles, where we could maintain a website, where we could post videos, where we could announce forthcoming events, which made a tremendous difference. Indeed, by 2006, it had taken off like a rocket. We had some four to 600 members in four different categories. For example, when Alex Jones organized his American Scholars Conference in Los Angeles in 2006, he invited me, to be the keynote speaker. And when C-SPAN filmed the panel discussion on Sunday morning, the four participants, the four members of the panel, were all members of Scholars for 9-11 Truth. Steve Jones, a physicist from BYU, whom I'd invited to be my co-chairman. Bob Bauman, who had a degree in nuclear engineering from Caltech and was the advisor on the Star Wars project to Presidents Reagan and Ford. Webster Tarbley had published a book entitled 9-11 Synthetic Terror Made in the USA. And me, as a founder of Scholars, where I gave my top 10 reasons the hijackers were fake, moderated by Alex Jones. It ran an hour and 45, and C-SPAN would subsequently broadcast it six or eight times at good times of day. Well, we've all been told that the Twin Towers collapse. Here's proof that's not the case. When buildings collapse, all the floors come down at the same time. They come down at the same time, approximately the speed of free fall, because a collapse is engineered by blowing apart all of the support columns simultaneously. It's a very arduous process to prepare. Here we can see something very different taking place. We see the North Tower blowing apart in every direction from the top down. All the floors remain stationary, the, the, awaiting their turn to be blown to kingdom come in the memorable phrase of Morgan Reynolds. The buildings are being converted into millions of cubic yards of very fine dust. This is very different than what we're told. Here's the official story of the collapse, which, as I explained, because of the jet fuel and so forth, they claimed it weakened the steel and the top floors collapsed on the lower. But as I've already uh, elaborated, that was not even physically possible. Chuck Baldwin, once again, did multiple calculations about the amount of upward resistance versus downward force. And if you consider the force downward, for every unit of downward force, say for every ton of downward force, there were 
as in this diagram, 118 tons of upward force. In other words, it's absolutely preposterous. You got downward in, in magnitude, but overwhelmingly greater in the opposite direction. Simple linear vector force physics and math in John Skilling's vector force anti-crushdown equation established the most conclusive and convincing proof for the impossibility for the collapse of the Twin Towers on 9-11. And indeed, look at this. This is an absolutely fantastic photograph. You can see the buildings. This is the North Tower being converted into millions of cubic yards of very fine dust. And Jeremy, there in the foreground, that's building seven, that 47-story structure that would only come down seven hours later. Um, that's, I think, the same photograph that Judy Wood uses on her book, on the cover of her book. Oh, oh yeah, sure, sure, sure. Uh, and I'll talk about Judy. I mean, she, she... When I talk about how it was actually done, yeah, Judy calls this a bubbler. It's a fantastic photograph. Judy also emphasizes here the the core columns of the North Col uh, uh, Tower being subjected to molecular disintegration. Uh, so here you can see them turning into dust. This is the final remnant of the North Tower turning into dust. Now, what I'm pointing out here is this is no collapse. This is the utter demolition of these buildings by some very powerful source of energy that cannot possibly have been accomplished by conventional explosives or even by nanothermite, as I'm going to explain. Here you see the enormity of the dust cloud that uh, uh, enveloped Manhattan. Unbelievable. It turns out that there are multiple forms of proof that it was done using mini nukes. Now, when we talk about Judy Wood, and let me go all the way back here, Judy Wood advocates use of directed energy weapons as having been responsible for the destruction of the Twin Towers. Well, uh, I invited Judy to be a speaker at the Vancouver hearings I conducted in 2012, which she declined. Her colleague, John Hutchison, and, and another physicist who are on her side had agreed because I wanted to represent all points of view. But Judy talked them into not participating. While I was there, a whole lot of evidence was presented by Jeff Prager and others about the use of nuclear devices to destroy the Twin Towers, which would have the very effects of nuclear dissociation we see witnessed in this video, which is so utterly convincing now. Before I went to Vancouver, I posted a five-star review of Judy's book on Amazon.com, explaining how it was a brilliant compilation of photographs, drawings, studies, and that I, while I thought she'd been successful in eliminating the use of large nukes, that she'd not excluded the possibility of mini-nukes. When I went to the Vancouver hearing and came back with all this additional knowledge about the use of nukes, I discovered that my review, even though it was five stars, had been attacked some 2,000 times by supporters of Judy. Because if you deviate in the very least from Judy's position, you're regarded as a heretic. And that actually fits. Because it turns out, as I'm about to explain, that Judy Wood turns out to be the, the, the mystical leader of what turns out to be uh, 
pseudo-scientific cult where they have a sacred text, where did the towers go, and a Praetorian guard, including a fellow named Thomas Potter, uh, another fellow named Andrew Johnson. Uh, it may even be that Richard Hall supports Judy, uh, 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 who will attack viciously anyone who challenges their view. Well, when I discovered 2,000 attacks on my review, I realized I need to adjust, and I down downgraded to a three-star review and added the results of the U.S. Geological Survey which had conducted dust studies at 35 locations in lower Manhattan and found elements that would only have been present had it been a nuclear event. Barium, thorium, lithium, lanthanum, tritium, some of which only exist in radioactive form. So I added that. Judy had to take into account this new evidence or abdicate her role as a scientist. The last time I had the opportunity to check, Jeremy, there were over 7,000 attacks on my review of Judy's book. I mean, there were occasional intermittent support, but the overwhelming majority were attacking my review for criticizing Judy Wood. In scientific inquiry, and specifically, and in rational investigations generally, you must adjust your conclusions when you're presented with new evidence or alternative hypotheses. Here we have the U.S. Geological Survey dust studies, which have been complemented, by the way, by fantastic incidents of abnormal cancers, multiple myeloma, leukemia, esophageal, pancreatic cancer. Judy cannot explain on the basis of directed energy weapons, ergo, since to be scientific is to adjust your conclusions on the basis of new evidence or alternative hypothesis, Judy Wood no longer qualifies as a scientist, but rather she is the leader, the mystical leader of a cult. Now, the way it turns out to have been done was with a mini-nuke in the sub-basements. Now, the mini-nuke projected massive force upward and destroyed the 47-column inner tube. Remember, the design is a tube within a tube. So it destroyed the 47-column massive inner tube from the bottom up. And then when it got to the top, it blew apart the building from the top down. What we were observing was from the top down. Indeed, it's fascinating, though it's seldom discussed, that in the case of the top tower, that top 34 started to tilt to the side and was then blown up. I mean, it's fascinating what happened here. By this account, dissolving the upper block pressure wave from below acted as a locking bolt. The upper block impaled itself on the plasma needle and was destroyed, while the tower inside vaporized. Meanwhile, the rest of the building, what we observed from the outside, was the destruction of the building from the top down by massive source of energy and the conversion into millions of cubic yards of very fine dust. And remember the point I made before, Jeremy, they had to find a novel way to destroy the buildings without damaging the bathtub. This is what they did. Now, Judy's also made much of what she calls a toasted cars. These are vehicles that have suffered very odd effects 
that she suggests could only have been done by directed energy weaponry. There's quite a bit of this. However, it turns out it can equally well be explained by the effects of the mini-nuke. Now, by the way, this is uh, for, these are, we're talking about fourth or fifth generation devices that have reduced radiation, but nevertheless sufficient to bring about the same effects. So there's nothing that Judy can explain with directed energy weapons that cannot be explained by the use of nukes. And there's lots that can be explained by the use of nukes that cannot be explained by directed energy weapons, including the results of the U.S. Geological Survey, to which I shall return. But here again is another phenomenon. Massive steel assembly was ejected from the North Tower at a 45-degree angle and wound up in the Winter Garden, which one of my collaborators has described the Winter Garden where dews and nanothermite go to die. Get this. Jet fuel fires, even if they burned hot enough and long enough, would cause the buildings to sag and gradually collapse. Jet fuel could not have ejected 300 tons up at a 45-degree angle and 600 feet outward into the winter garden. To explode steel, an explosive needs to have a detonation velocity of 6,100 meters per second. To explode cement, a detonation velocity of 3,200 meters per second is required. Kerosene, which is a principal constituent in jet fuel, has a detonation velocity of only 1,600 meters per second, and therefore can't have been responsible. But get this, nanothermite, which is a more sophisticated version of thermite, which burns at intensely high temperatures, 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit, used to fuse together railroad ties to disable artillery. You drop a thermite grenade down the barrel of a howitzer, and it fuses together the firing mechanism, making it inoperable has a detonation velocity of only 895 meters per second. Many nukes, however, would have had the observed effects. Indeed, T. Mark Hightower and I published three different articles about the nanothermite hypothesis and how it wasn't even possible that it could have had the effects observed. Where, just to offer one additional example of the ridiculousness of the nanothermite hypothesis, Niels Herrett, who's an associate professor of chemistry emeritus, meaning retired, from the University of Copenhagen, was asked to estimate how much nanothermite it would require to destroy a twin tower. His calculation, 29,000 metric Gee. tons. Uh, Jeremy, it's just absurd. Uh, 29,000. Uh, this is like filling a, a twin tower with circus peanuts. I mean, it's J just James, absurd. Can I stop you just yeah. for a second? I, uh, I opened something in front of me here uh, regarding the cancer. Uh, you're talking, you mentioned cancer-related deaths or at least cancer-related yeah. incidents. Listen to this. Cancers related to 9-11 increased by more than 1,000% 1, from 1,870 confirmed cases to 20,612, and that's all related to 9-11. Yes, yes, actually, the number today, Jeremy, is around 70,000. Sure. It's stunning. We'll get there. I have a report, but I'll elaborate.
Here's what we had from the U.S. Geological Report that Judy Wood refuses to acknowledge, which means she can't possibly have the whole story. I mean, you could claim that they use directed energy weapons and mini nukes and nanothermite, but get this. The nanothermite residue is a predictable effect of interaction between the aluminum cladding, which was used to decorate the Twin Towers, and the steel when it was exposed to the, the destruction process generated by the, the mini nuke. In other words, you would get those nanothermite uh, little specks as a consequence had it been a nuclear event. Uh, no, but look at this. From the U.S. Geological Survey, the elements that would only have been present had it been a nuclear event. Barium and strontium. Neither of these elements should ever appear in building debris in these quantities. The levels never fall below 400 parts per million for barium. They never drop below 700 parts per million for strontium and reach over 3,000 parts per million for both in the dust sample taken at Broadway and John Streets. Thorium and uranium. These elements only exist in radioactive form. Thorium is a radioactive element formed from uranium by decay. It's very rare and should not be present in building rubble ever. So once again, we have verifiable evidence that a nuclear fission event has taken place. Lithium. With the presence of lithium, we have compelling evidence that this fission pathway of uranium to thorium and helium with subsequent delay of the helium into lithium has taken place. Lanthanum. The next element in the disintegration pathway of the element barium, yttrium, the next decay element after strontium, which further confirms the presence of barium, chromium. The presence of chromium is one more telltale signature of a nuclear detonation. Tritium, a very rare element, should not be found at concentration 55 times normal in the basement of WTC6 no less than 11 days after 9-11, which is another telltale sign of a nuclear event. And let me just add, by the way, the conversion of materials into very fine dust is a signature of nuclear events, Jeremy. So the evidence that this was a nuclear event is overwhelming. Meanwhile, returning to the question about the medical maladies, this is from the Daily Mail back in August of 2016. The curse of ground zero. Number of cancer cases among 9-11 responders and survivors triples to more than 5,400 in less than three years. The WTC health program is 5,441 with 6,378 separate cancers. In 2014, it had 1,822 out of 48,000 people on its books. Dust and smoke from 9-11 has been linked to 50 types of cancer. One firefighter said he often sees 10 to 15 responders at his cancer hospital. The 9-11 Victim Compensation Fund made its first cancer payouts in 2013. And what I'm explaining now, Jeremy, is the numbers up to around 70,000 all sorts of extraordinary cancers. As I mentioned, multiple myeloma, leukemia, esophageal pancreatic cancer, a pattern 
very similar to that which followed the meltdown of the nuclear reactor in Chernobyl, which, of course, is in Ukraine, where we now face the potential threat of another meltdown because Ukrainian forces are shelling a nuclear reactor there in attempt to create a catastrophe they want to blame on Russia. Meanwhile, the Port Authority claims that the records for renovation work on the Twin Towers had been destroyed. Turner Construction, which supervised the 2000 demolition of the Seattle Kingdom, participated in the post-9-11 Ground Zero cleanup, performed extensive renovation of the World Trade Center Tower prior to 9-11. Get it? Turner Construction was in there prior to 9-11, and now you got them cleaning up after 9-11 so they could remove any signs of any evidence that they'd done anything improper. The Port Authority now claims records describing their work and other projects was destroyed on 9-11. A December 2000 WTC property assessment described requiring renovation work to be completed within one year in order right at the time of 9-11 upon steel columns within elevator shafts of both towers that was immediately pending or already underway. And it appears access to those elevator shafts was indispensable. Now, look, here's what you have from a real bona fide collapse. This is a fabricated concrete structure in Pakistan. Notice how you just got piles of floors upon floors. Here's what we had with Building 7 at 5.20 in the afternoon. Building 7, this 47-story structure, came down in a classic controlled demolition. You can see a little kink at the top. All the floors come down together, and when it's over, they leave a pile of debris equal to 12% of the original height of 47 floors, or five and a half floors of debris. That's a classic result. We got that at the Kingdom. We get that in Las Vegas when they take down resorts and casinos. We get that wherever we take down large structures, they leave a pile of debris of about 12%. But that here we have Barry Jennings, who was actually in the, the Building 7 that morning. He was with the New York City Emergency Management and went to Rudy Giuliani's uh, command and control center, two floors of Building 7, that had their own air and water supply. He found half-eaten sandwiches still steaming ch- uh, uh, cups of coffee. A fireman came along and said, we got to get you out of there. While he was inside the building, heard explosions taking place as they were prepping the building for demolition. This was an extremely robust building, Jeremy, It was erected over two enormous electrical generators, providing backup electricity for lower Manhattan. It was designed to never collapse. Just to give you an illustration, even in the Twin Towers with those enormous steel beams, they used hollowed out centers because they provide virtually the same amount of strength as a solid steel beam. In Building 7, they use solid steel beams. Mary Jennings found himself, you know, a a fire escape collapsed under him while he was making his exit. He felt himself stepping over dead bodies in the pitch black. He couldn't see them, but he felt them. When he got out, he gave an interview about it. Well, one of the major complaints about the 9-11 report was it did not even mention Building 7. 
So they had to undertake a whole separate report on Building 7, and would you believe, just days before the report was to be released, Mary Jennings died unexpectedly. I should mention, by the way, with that friend of my friend, uh, uh, Roy Schaefer, Dave Ball, who witnessed the plane fly over the Pentagon, uh, I told Roy Dave ought to come on my show and report what he had observed because he'd be far safer. And Roy explained to me Dave was reluctant to do so. I explained to Roy he'd be much, much safer if he were to do that. And the next I heard from Roy, Dave Ball had been found dead in an abandoned building. We're talking about inconvenient witnesses. Here you can see now, Jeremy, in the upper left, that's at five and a half floors of debris from Building 7 which came down in a classic controlled demolition. Then in the immediate foreground, you see where building one had stood, which was destroyed even two or slightly below ground level. I had Father Frank Morales from St. Mark's Episcopal Church come on my radio shows twice, and both times he emphasized how those buildings had been destroyed two or even below ground level. There was a glitch when the BBC reported prematurely that Building 7, to which they referred as the Solomon Brothers building, because Solomon Brothers owned a huge chunk of it, and where the building was so robust, they were able to completely redesign the interior of the building uh, because of its, its sturdy structure. Reported that the Solomon Brothers building had collapsed when it was still visible over her left shoulder, as you can see here. This occurred at 4.57, when the actual destruction wouldn't occur until 5.20. This is a, a glitch, a classic illustration of where the media is following the script and, and collaboration between the intel agencies, and in this instance, the BBC, that, that the media has never been able to explain, Jeremy, yes. Uh, why is that building so empty in the middle? It's hollowed out. Well, that's, that's building six. Uh, there appears to have been a massive blowout in the middle of that building. Uh, 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 the, there was a huge gold heist, you know, related to 9-11. There were vaults down there that were empty, and there was a truck that had been a part of used to the, for the gold heist and was beneath this building. And that that appears to have been, a, you know, a, a, a separate use of what also appears to have been a, a nuclear device to blow out the center of Building 6. Yeah. It's fascinating. There are very detailed studies, even including some excellent by Judy Wood, if you simply recognize that it wasn't actually directed energy weapons that did the damage, but rather mini nukes. I mean, it's just fascinating, Jeremy. So good catch. Yes, this is a partial, not fully destroyed Building 6, whereas Building 7, 1, and 2, and the others were virtually completely destroyed. Meanwhile, Turning to the politics, I mentioned that during the live broadcast, an anchor, and you heard it in the very opening segment when we were interrupted from watching the MASH rerun, said that uh, what I think she meant was a popular front for the liberation of Palestine had claimed responsibility. Well, that's absurd. The more you learn, the more you realize that the hijackers were merely patsies and that it would have been preposterous and impossible for Palestinians, for example, to have controlled 
demolition of Building 7 or to have nuke Building 1 and 2. I mean, the more you learn, the more absurd becomes the official narrative. Well, not only did they claim that the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine had been responsible, but they showed footage of Palestinians cheering and rejoicing. Here's a frame from the footage they played live on 9-11, implying that Palestinians were overjoyed and thrilled with the attack on the United States on 9-11. Well, frankly, that was absurd, too. The Palestinians were just as stunned and slack-jawed. I was immediately aware that this had to be from archival footage of some religious or political event where the Palestinians were rejoicing that they just happened to play to cast aspersions on their historic enemies. This is an Israeli technique. They go a bridge too far. This is one of those cases where they went overboard and tried to blame Palestinians for an attack. Notice here the headline, Breaking News, America Under Attack. The Palestinians had absolutely nothing to do with it. Rudy Giuliani, however, I'm sorry to say, appears to have had a lot to do with it. This was actually election day. That very day, I think Rudy thought he was going to come across as uh, America's mayor, be a hero of 9-11 and be elected to a third term. It didn't play out that way. You asked about the other flights. Here's the actual page from the Bureau of Transportation Statistics showing no American Airlines Flight 11 scheduled to depart Boston Logan on 9-11. Here's the original Bureau of Transportation Statistics shot showing no American Airlines 77 scheduled to depart Washington Dulles on 9-11. Here's what I obtained from the FAA registration records showing that a physical aircraft used for flights 93 and 175 or bear in mind, the same physical aircraft can be used for multiple flights today from Tampa to Chicago tomorrow, from New York to San Francisco. We're not even taken out of service or formally deregistered until 28 September 2005. So how can planes that did, weren't even in the air have crashed on 9-11, Jeremy? And how can planes that crashed on 9-11 have still been in the air four years later? You begin to appreciate the enormity. As David Ray Griffin makes a very first point in his magisterial book, The 9-11 Commission Report Omissions and Distortions, a half a dozen or more of the alleged suicide hijackers turned up alive and well and made contact with the British press the following day. Even Mohammed Atta's father, where he was alleged to have been the leader of the gang, said his son had called him in desperation that he had nothing to do with it, but that he was concerned they were going to kill him, and for good reason. Meanwhile, remember, if no planes crashed, then no passengers died, and no Islamic hijackers caused them to crash. And if no Islamic hijackers caused them to crash, then there was no warrant or any justification for the war on terror. Meanwhile, as I mentioned before, the whole plan was a brainchild of Bibi Netanyahu and Ehud Omert, where Bibi and Larry Silverstein were buddies, where they had phone conversations every Sunday. On 9-11, by the way, even though Larry Silverstein would have breakfast at Windows on the World atop of the North Tower with his daughter, who also worked there, neither of them showed up for work that morning. And indeed, 
we know with regard to Building 7 that Larry Silverstein gave an interview with the PBS about how he was contacted by the fire commander about Building 7, what should we do with Building 7? And he said, well, there's been so much death and devastation, perhaps we should pull it, which is a construction firm for bringing down by controlled demolition. And he said, they made the decision to pull and we watched it come down. Well, Jeremy, it takes huge amount of time to prep a building for a controlled demolition. So clearly that was already in the works. But there you have Larry Silverstein admitting his complicity. Meanwhile, by the way, after taking control, I'll add this, he would fire the, the security firm that had been looking after the World Trade Center since 1970 and hire an Israeli firm in its place. Here you have one of the final assemblies of the Duma in Russia where the Soviet dissolution of the USSR took place in 1991. In the aftermath, the neoconservatives, who were mostly dual U.S.-Israeli citizens, founded the Project for a New American Century that was advocating the idea that if the United States were moving to the Middle East and exert military and diplomatic pressure outward from that geopolitically sensitive region, they could create a new American empire that would endure for the next 100 years. It was all nonsense, but they wanted to get the U.S. into the Middle East to take out the modern Arab states that served as a counterbalance Israel's domination of the entire region. In one of their publications entitled Rebuilding America's Defenses, Strategy Forces and Resources for a New Century, they wrote, the process of transformation meaning to a unipolar, so now the United States is the only remaining superpower, even if it brings revolutionary change, is likely to be a long one absent some catastrophic and catalyzing event, like a new Pearl Harbor. And remember, that's what we were hearing from Washington, D.C. right off the bat. This was a new Pearl Harbor. Domestic politics and industrial policy will shape the base and content of transformation as much as the requirements of current missions. Well, Wesley Clark, when he returned to the Pentagon after serving as Supreme Commander Allied Forces Europe, meaning he was the commanding general of NATO, encountered a general of his acquaintance who explained to him the plan to invade Iraq. They both thought that was very peculiar because Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11. So the, he told the general, keep him posted. When he returned to the Pentagon a month or longer later, he asked the same general, he said, are we still planning to invade Iraq? And the general said, oh, oh, no, sir, it's much more serious. We have a new memorandum from the Secretary of Defense. Step into my office. He said, we now plan to attack seven countries in the next five years. And, and Clark said, well, what in the world is that about? Why are we doing that? And the general said, I don't know. I guess we're just good at it. And Clark said, well, uh, is a memorandum class. Oh, yes, sir. Well, then don't show it to me because I may want to talk about it later. Well, on the 3rd of October, 2007, at the Commonwealth Club of California in San Francisco, Wesley Clark explained the plan to take out seven countries in the next five years, beginning with Iraq and Libya and ending with Syria and then confronting the Persian nation of Iran. It all worked, worked like clockwork up until 
Russia and Iran interviewed in Syria at the request of the democratically elected president of Syria. And while most Americans think we were in Syria to bring democracy to Syria, that's not possible because Syria is already a democracy. And that put an end to it, at least for the time being, but not for lack of trying. Here are two of the key neocons, Paul Wolfowitz and Richard Pearl, who are advocating the project for a new American century and toppling the seven governments in the next five years. Here are three of the members of the Port Authority who transferred the World Trade Center to Larry Silverstein just six weeks before the event. Frank Lowry, Ronald Lauder, and Paul Eisenberg, all of whom are prominent Zionists. These are all dual U.S.-Israeli citizens. Here's Larry Silverstein, who, as I said, gave that interview to PBS about the decision to pull the building, even though that would have required extensive preparation in advance. He also not only fired the security firm that had been looking after the Twin Towers since it first opened in 1970, but renegotiated his insurance policy uh, with an anti-terrorism clause so that because there were purportedly two planes and therefore two attacks, he got a double indemnity he collected, Jeremy, $4.5 billion on a $114 million investment. Here's the crawl. This is an Israeli security firm that replaced the firm that had been looking after the security. Odego is an Israeli messaging service. I had a little old lady from Brooklyn call me to tell me how their rabbi had warned the members of the synagogue not to go into lower Manhattan that day. Well, Odego was warning Jewish employees of the World Trade Center did not show up for work, so that the total number of Jews who died on 9-11, by my best count, can be represented by one finger of one hand. Meanwhile, even Mayor Willie Brown, who is maybe the most powerful politician in California, was advised by Condoleezza Rice, no less, not to fly on 9-11. He's tried to walk it back, but too late. There's not actually a shred of evidence any of the 9-11 hijackers boarded any planes. Craig McGee, who's done very good work. To believe the official story of 9-11, you have to swallow an awful lot. You have to believe the laws of physics can be suspended for a day, that planes can disappear after crashing, and that Muslims accused of being suicide hijackers said still be alive after the deed is done. Indeed... According to the FBI and the Department of Justice, they knew the 19 participants because they found luggage from Mohammed Atta at Logan Airport they'd left behind that had a convenient list of the 19 participants. Think about how absurd that is. And even though we know a half a dozen or more of these guys turned up alive and well and made contact with the British media the day before, they have not and will not revise their list. I had a most interesting conversation with, uh, with James Files, who, who was uh, claims to have been the shooter behind the grassy No, the second shooter, if you look at the final report of the House Select Committee reinvestigation, which posited there'd been a second shooter on the grassy knoll. Files came to Madison, and he and his wife and I had dinner together. I like the guy tremendously, though I've concluded that he's playing a role, the designated role of being the second shooter. 
Uh, what he said to me on two different occasions during our conversation really, really struck. He said, once the government takes a position, it's locked in. It is stuck. This is like the astronauts, you know, reporting during their first press conference that the sky was completely dark and you couldn't see any stars. That's simply absurd. But because if they were to contradict, it would blow the cover. They're locked in on it. Similarly, the claim that they have the 19 hijackers, they're locked in on it. In fact, we've actually identified eight different shooters in Dealey Plaza, none of whom is named Lee Harvey Oswald, and none, so far as I can tell, is named James Files either. But I like the guy tremendously. Meanwhile, these guys were set up as patsies. That's why he had so many reports of them trying to learn how to fly all this nonsense. They were incompetent of flying. They couldn't have flown the planes. The whole idea was absurd. Turns out the 9-11 hijacker passports were issued by the CIA. Get that. Whistleblower Michael Springman ordered to give visas to the eventual terrorists. Whistleblower Indira Singh claimed that the company PTAC, this is another Israeli firm, had access to all FAA databases for two hours on the morning of 9-11 so they could fake the planes. Here you have Rumsfeld talking about the $2.3 trillion missing from the Pentagon, which is an odd thing to do early in the week, because any experienced politician, as Rumsfeld was experienced, would know a big story like that will grow legs and develop during the week. It's as though he knew that events were going to intervene so they could waltz into the halls of Congress the following day and ask for hundreds of billions more in defense spending which is exactly what happened. Meanwhile, this is Dub Zockheim, the controller of the Pentagon, when the $2.3 trillion went missing, the dual citizen, the rabbi, who as a company makes those air, air control mechanisms to take control of planes if they're hijacked, which I believe was the original plan, until they discovered it was physically impossible for planes to enter the building, so they had to devise an alternative plan. Now, the Jersey girls, they were four widows from New Jersey who uh, had lost husbands on 9-11, created so much political pressure on Bush and Cheney that even though they resisted the idea of forming a 9-11 commission for 441 days, 441 days, for over a year, when, if you look at earlier events like Pearl Harbor, FDR, JFK, LBJ, they formed commissions right off the bat. Bush and Cheney didn't want any commission, no doubt, because it would have revealed or had the potential to reveal their own complicity in these events. They originally suggested Henry Kissinger should be the head of the 9-11 Commission, which is a great idea if you want to bury evidence. But Kissinger declined because he would have had to reveal his financial entanglements. So they chose an academician by the name of Philip Zelikow, who is presently on the faculty of the Department of History at the University of Virginia, where I myself taught twice as a visiting associate professor in 77-78, and then as a visiting full professor spring term 1981, where uh, uh, Zelikow 
had his area of specialization in the academy, the creation and maintenance of public myths, M-Y-T-H-S. And that's exactly what I believe Philip Zelikow, give us a 9-11. I believe Philip Zelikow authored the script for 9-11. Who better, therefore, to put in charge of the 9-11 commission? In fact, staff members complained that he'd completed a draft of the 9-11 commission report a year before he shared it with any member of the staff, and obviously before they'd conducted their hearings. So he knew in advance what it would read. If you think of uh, the theory of 9-11 as suspended in space and then connected to reality by little chains of evidence, such as the uh, the phone calls from the passengers on the planes or the, the crash sites or the, the demolition of the World Trade Center or the Islamic terrorists. Every one of those chains that's supposed to connect the theory to reality has been broken, shattered, destroyed. Even the alleged phone calls turn out to have been physically impossible and were fake. Uh, A.K. Dudney, who is a professor of computer science at Western Ontario, took three different types of cell phones and made various flights aboard commercial carriers and discovered at speeds greater than 200 miles an hour or altitudes greater than 2,000 feet, cell phones don't work because the relay towers can't switch the phone calls fast enough to maintain. So all those you know, let's roll and all the other was just a political theater, unsurprising when you consider that none of the four planes actually crashed. I mean, this was on a monumental scale. And Philip Zelikow is my candidate for the man who scripted 9-11. And he remains on the faculty of the Environment of History at the University of Virginia. When I was there, by the way, the University of Virginia was number one public university in the United States. Well, lawsuits have been attempted, but Judge Alvin Hellerstein, another Zionist, bottles them up. He's a district court for the Southern District of New York. He'd been involved in high-profile 9-11-related cases and made sure none of them would go forward. Here you have the perps behind the scene, the Brain Trust, Bibi Netanyahu, and Ehud Ulmert consulting. And here you have George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. Where Cheney, by the way, appears to have been running the whole operation as the executive director of 9-11 from beneath a bunker underneath a White House. Norman Mineta, our then Secretary of Transportation, was in the bunker with Cheney and reported to the 9-11 Commission. Though they had no idea the significance of what he was telling them at the time, and didn't even include his testimony in their final report. Surprise, surprise. Then an aide to Cheney came up and said, sir, it's 50 miles out, sir, it's 40 miles out, sir, it's 30 miles out. Do the order still stand? And Cheney whipped around and said, of course, have you heard anything to the contrary? Well, the order had to be to not shoot down the plane. This was a plane approaching the Pentagon. Shooting down the plane was the obvious thing to do because since they are being used as weapons, you shoot down the plane and you destroy the passenger in the plane, but you preserve the personnel and the property at the target. This was the plane that was flown toward the Pentagon that approached north of the Sitco station and then swerved over the building at the same time an explosion took place at the facade, even leading those at the Sitco station to believe 
wrongly that the plane had actually hit the Pentagon. Unbelievable. Remember, Flight 77 wasn't even in the air that day. Remember, it was an unmanned aerial vehicle, a Global Hawk, that fired a missile into the building. It was not hit by any aircraft. As Jamie McIntyre reported from his close-up observation, there were no signs that any plane had hit anywhere near the Pentagon. Meanwhile, I want to compliment Thierry Maison, a, a French intellectual, a brilliant guy. He runs a VoltaireNet.org website because it was he and his son who created a website, Hunt the Boeing in the Aftermath, published a book called Pentagate, explaining that there was no reason to believe a Boeing 757 had hit anywhere near the Pentagon. When I published this recognition on my blog on September 2nd of last year, 2021, I added the note. When Thierry Mason published Hunt the Boeing and Pentagate 2002, he was making the key point that no Boeing 757 had hit the Pentagon, which meant that as a U.S. military command and control center, the entire 9-11 operation had to be a fraud. He was right about that, where I have embedded the results of collaborative research by members of Scholars for 9-11 Truth, which I founded as confirmation across the board. If you want more, you can check it out. I have two books on 9-11. The university was very supportive. I've been flown around the world to give lectures and presentations around about 9-11. I, I was flown to Athens, Greece in 2000, December of 2006 with my wife, all expense paid, to appear on a, a, a television program that was hosted a main muckraker in Greece whose research had brought down corrupt Greek governments. It was three hours long. There were 12 panelists. They told me going in, usually only one or two asked questions. I said, not tonight. All 12 asked questions. They had such wonderful clips from 9-11. He extended it for an extra half an hour. So the three and a half hour was broadcast worldwide by satellite. In 2008, I was flown down to Buenos Aires to give lectures on JFK and 9-11. In 2009, I was flown back again to be the keynote speaker at an international symposium on 9-11 Truth and Justice held at the National Library of the Republic of Argentina, where they had a, a dozen TV screens. Every lecture I gave appeared and was reported in the press in Argentina where they have respect for scholarship and intellectuals we do not find present in the United States today. In 2010, I organized uh, a symposium on debunking the war on terror in London, England, uh, where we showed that there was no justification for making this assault on the modern Arab states. Uh, then in 2012, the Vancouver hearings. In 2007, I failed to mention I had organized a conference on the science and politics of 9-11 right here in Madison. I published a book based upon that, the 9-11 conspiracy, uh, you know, uh, 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 deceiving the American people. Because remember, the official account was itself a conspiracy, which only requires two or more individuals conspiring together. But now, more recently, I published America Nuked on 9-11. Compliments of the CIA, the neocons, and the Department of Defense are the most sought. On the back cover, it reads, does this look like any kind of collapse? 
The Twin Towers were masterpieces of design and engineering. They were virtually incapable of collapse, but blown apart in every direction from the top down. In only nine seconds for the South Tower and 11 for the North. That difference, I think, because that top part of the South Tower tilting to the side. Did you know that a third building, WTC7, actually did collapse at 5.20 p.m. Eastern Time, which was about seven hours after the North Tower was destroyed? Did you know it was not hit by any plane and had no jet fuel-based fires? Did you know that the most striking piece of air parts, aircraft debris on the Pentagon lawn came from the crash of a Boeing 757 near Cali, Columbia, 1995? It follows that 9-11 was not done by 19 Islamic terrorists. If you want to know the who, the how, and the why, the answers are found here. For the contributors included Ed Ward, MD, Jeff Prager, Susan Lindauer, Preston James, PhD, Dennis Camino, Jack White, Nicholas Kohlerstrom, PhD, Mike Palachek, Mark Hardtower, Jim Fetzer, PhD, Steve Fahuni, an aeronautical engineer, Joshua Blakeney, and Don Fox. I got to tell you, Jeremy, the collaborative research has been decisive in sorting out what really happened on 9-11. So the question here is, can you explain the 16 survivors at at the bottom of the one tower, um, especially the 9-11 surfer that apparently fell from the 22nd floor down to a steel ledge about seven floors high. When he looked up, there was nothing above him. Well, you know, that that's a really good question. And it appears we you get these anomalies in these events where some people just happen to be in a position where they don't suffer the causal effects that are otherwise affecting the structure. So that it was uh, the answer, I think, turns out to be it was a fluke that they just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And it was uh, what we don't commonly call a miracle that they survived. There was no good reason had they been anywhere else, they would not have survived. So it was just a fortuitous conversion of circumstance, mm. just as we have that anomaly that the Nade brothers couldn't have panned their camera to catch except for a hundred improbable circumstances. That was deliberate, in this case, circumstantial. In a short paragraph, how would you describe this conversation? Well, you've afforded me, the founder of Scholars of 9-11 Truth, the opportunity to provide a summary overview of the research of two decades on 9-11. And for that, I'm profoundly in your debt. Remember, I don't speak for myself. These aren't merely the opinions of Jim Fetzer. These are the opinions that are distilled from research, collaborative research of actually, no doubt, hundreds of individuals and key parties, especially whose work is reported in the book, which means that, well, one individual might have a certain probability of making a mistake. Uh, when you get multiple individuals with a small probability when they converge on their conclusion, the probability that they're wrong is virtually zero. And I submit, in relation to everything I've been presenting to you here today, the probability of any of that being wrong is extremely low. So I report all this with a high degree of confidence. And bear in mind, my own PhD 
is in the history and the philosophy of science. I graduated from Princeton in philosophy when Princeton was number one in math, physics, and philosophy. I served four years in the Marine Corps, resigned my commission as a captain to enter graduate school at Indiana in the history and the philosophy of science. I had 35 years as a professor of philosophy offering principally courses in logic, critical thinking, and scientific reasoning. I'm an expert in those fields. I have published 24 plus books in traditional academic areas, including the nature of scientific explanation and scientific reasoning, the theoretical foundation of computer science, artificial intelligence, cognitive science, evolution, and, intel and, uh, and mentality, and another dozen plus in the areas of conspiracy research on JFK, four books on 9-11, two uh, on uh, uh, Paul Wellstone's death, a co-authored book with ultra, uh, uh, additional contributions from experts, and then these collaborative books on Sandy Hook, the Boston bombing, Orlando and Dallas, uh, Charlottesville, Parkland, even the moon landing. And Amazon has seen fit to ban six of those, Jeremy, and I'm going to tell you, it's not because they got it wrong. You know, as in my judgment, Amazon has been acting as an extension of the state and thereby violating my First Amendment right to freedom of speech and freedom of the press, and I want to do something about that. I just want you to understand, this is not just some guy who wandered in off the street offering opinions off the top of his head. This is a distilled summary of what we've discovered from two decades of serious objective scientific research on 9-11. And I got to tell you, it illustrates the maxim that knowledge does not mean happiness. When you know the truth, that doesn't mean it's going to make you happier. You may find it profoundly disillusioning. You may be left in dismay and despair, as this case, I think, so perfectly illustrates. James Fetzer, thank you for joining me in the trenches. My great pleasure, Jeremy, always. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.